This week, the much-hyped HOPE-3 study of statin and antihypertensive treatment in patients at intermediate cardiovascular risk. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Amol Verma, I'm your host and I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto and today I am joined by Dr. Rena Patani who is an internist at St. Michael's Hospital also in Toronto. Hey Rena, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Very, very good. So, uh Rena, it's time for a new hope. Yes, I'm hopeful we'll have something meaningful to share with your listeners. Oh, I sure hope so. <laughs> how long can we go? Okay. So, Rena, hope 1, ramipril in patients with diabetes and uh, patients with established cardiovascular disease and elevated cardiovascular risk shows that ramipril has mortality benefit or has cardiovascular benefit. HOPE 2 shows that folic acid, vitamin B6, and vitamin B12 do not have benefit at preventing cardiovascular events. And now here we are, HOPE 3. It's like the final trilogy. Yes, indeed. All right. So um, we're excited to be talking about this new blockbuster trial uh, that is coming out of the Population Health Research Institute and Dr. Salim Youssef's giant trials machine at McMaster University. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about this, which has like obvious and immediate clinical relevance. So I feel like it's been a bit of a lull since we've had like a major headlining study. Not that we haven't reviewed, you know, high quality work, but, you know, the buzz is just a little bit more excitable about this one. I guess, but um, I'll remind you that you also reviewed the sprint trial um, just a few months ago. In yeah, the well, winter. you know, that's, uh, Rena. it's been a long winter. I guess and, so. And, you know, if if I've just been clinging to studies for warmth, it's been a while since sprint. Okay, so before we dive in, though, we have a segment from our very own Jennifer Peng to talk to us about myths around the common cold. Hey, everyone. It's Jennifer here with a brand new installment of Mythbusters. Today's medical myth is, can cold weather cause the common cold? We've all heard that being exposed to cold, like going outside with a wet head or getting caught in the rain can cause the common cold. It's probably one of the most widespread beliefs out there, but does this statement actually hold any truth? After all, the name common cold gets its origins from being associated with cold exposure. So what's the evidence? Well, simply put, there has been no scientific evidence supporting the claim that cold exposure directly produces the common cold, otherwise known as upper respiratory tract infections. Studies that involved inoculating cold viruses, such as rhinovirus and coronavirus, into the noses of healthy participants and then exposing them into a cold environment for different periods of time failed to demonstrate that the length of exposure to a cold temperature has any effect on the susceptibility of infection. However, there may still be a relationship between exposure to a low temperature environment and acute respiratory tract infections. In fact, one study from the literature found that rates of upper respiratory tract infections in a tropical climate were less prevalent than in colder climates, yet the seasonal incidence of upper respiratory tract infections were the same. There has been a boatload of theories suggesting how cold weather may indirectly cause the common cold. Here are a few of those theories. 
The first is all about how we behave when the weather gets cold. We tend to stay indoors where air is recycled, we're more likely to be in closer proximity with other people and their viruses, making it more likely that we sneeze and cough on each other, spreading the infection around. Second is what happens to our bodies during cold weather. The mucosa in our upper airways gets dry, which makes it easier for viruses to invade and produce clinical symptoms. All of these different factors increase the likelihood of us catching a cold during the colder months. There is another hypothesis out there, which may bridge these different theories together. Originally proposed by Sir Christopher Andrews in 1965, the theory is that a latent infection could become symptomatic after exposure to cold temperatures. More recently, scientists have further developed this idea, suggesting that acute cooling of the body causes reflexive vasoconstriction of the nose and upper airways, leading to the inhibition of our respiratory defenses. This then causes cold symptoms by converting an already existing subclinical infection into a symptomatic clinical infection. But how many people could there be with latent infections? Apparently a lot. In viral challenge studies, it was found that only half of patients infected with upper respiratory tract virus actually developed symptoms, translating to a subclinical to clinical ratio of two to one. This means that every day, and especially during winter months where our cold promoting behaviors emerge, there's a large proportion of people walking around with viral infections and don't know it. In fact, natural exposure involves smaller doses of virus than the quantity used in viral challenge studies, and since infection with smaller viral loads are less likely to produce cold symptoms, this means the subclinical to clinical ratio may be even greater in reality. And finally, to support the notion that colder temperatures can hinder the body's immune response, a study using mouse airway cells found that rhinovirus replicated preferentially at 33 degrees, which is roughly the temperature of our nasal passages, then at 37 degrees, or core body temperature. So there you go. It's pretty clear that the relationship between the cold weather and the common cold is not simple, and the weight of existing evidence seems to suggest that cold weather indirectly promotes symptomatic viral infections. What do you guys think? Let us know your opinion by tweeting us at Roundstable. Thanks for listening to another installment of Mythbusters, and I'll catch you guys next time. Okay, thank you very much, Jennifer. That was really great. All right, Rena. without further ado, let's dive in. Let's talk about Hope 3. So this was a two-by-two two trial of statins and antihypertensive treatments in intermediate cardiovascular risk patients the bottom line is that it found that statins were effective in preventing cardiovascular events, whereas antihypertensive treatment was not. That's right. So let's dive in and talk a little bit about the methods, and then we will take each component separately. And then at the very end, we will put it all back together. So tell me, Rena, uh, a little bit about the design of this study. Sure. So as you mentioned, Amol, it was a two-by-two two factorial design, a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial that looked at 228 centers in 21 countries and included 12,705 patients. And basically what they were trying to look at was whether there would be any benefit to, as you mentioned, antihypertensive treatment with candesartan at 16 milligrams plus hydrochlorothiazide at 12.5 milligrams daily compared to placebo. And in the study that you're going to describe in more detail, it was rosuvastatin at 10 milligrams daily versus placebo. 
Perfect. And so what were the eligibility criteria? So essentially, they were looking at patients who are at intermediate risk of having cardiovascular events, which is a real takeoff from other studies which have tended to examine high-risk patients. So what's meant specifically by intermediate risk is an annual risk of about 1% of having an adverse cardiovascular event. So in this study, the inclusion criteria were men who were older than 55 years, women who were 65 years or older, and having at least one cardiovascular risk factor, which included elevated waist-to-hip ratio, low HDL, current or recent tobacco use, dysglycemia, family history of premature coronary artery disease, mild renal dysfunction. And then they also included women who were over the age of 60 years who had at least two of those risk factors. Their exclusion criteria were people who had known cardiovascular disease already, had a clear indication or contraindication to any of the trial drugs that we mentioned, had moderate to advanced renal disease, or already had symptomatic hypotension. And so the interesting point here is that there wasn't really any mandate for them having strict blood pressure or lipid control. People with hypertension could be enrolled if the BP was adequately controlled based on the opinion of the physician who was treating and and enrolling the patient. Um, either with lifestyle or with drugs that were other than the study drugs. And so the decision about the appropriateness of that was based on very local factors for physicians who are participating in the study. Right. So in that way, it's a pragmatic study. And I guess the, the one other element that was involved in selecting patients for this trial is that there was a four-week run-in phase, right? That's right. And that was really just to ensure that the patients who were being enrolled had adequate compliance. And they did blood work at the three-week mark to ensure that the patients who were being randomized hadn't had any adverse events. So that run-in period was where all patients were given both intervention drugs from the antihypertensive side as well as the statin. Perfect. And so just those last two points... Uh, you know, while we're here, I think we can editorialize a little bit and say that those last two points, that the exclusion criteria was driven by local physician judgment. And there was this four-week run-in phase in which, and I think if we look at the the actual figures, about 13% of the screened patients who went into the run-in phase were ultimately excluded from the trial for some reason. Um, so, both of those things have some effect on our ability to generalize these findings to a real-world setting. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, as we'll see when we discuss in more detail what these patients look like, they were otherwise very diverse group of patients, um, racially, ethnically, gender-wise, age-wise. Absolutely. And I think I'll just make, you know, when we come back to talking about safety and adverse events, I'll just come back and remind our listeners that 13% of the people screened for eligibility in this trial were excluded. And some portion of them, I think it was about 5%, uh, it's because they had an adverse event. So the true adverse event rate of exposure to these medications might be higher than what we see in the actual study. And uh, I guess the last point that bears mentioning is that the trial was funded by a combination of both public and industry funding. That's right. And that there was an industry member who was part of the 24-member steering committee, and they held just one vote out of that committee. That's important to note as well. Okay, perfect. So, uh, Rena, what were the primary outcomes in this study? You know, as we're editorializing, I'll just say one more thing as well, which is that... Uh-oh, we've gotten ourselves on a tangent. <laughs> Let's go. Tell me. I, I do want to say I think that this is a very ambitious trial and, and, and noteworthy because, you know, obviously they've, they've thrown efficiency out the window to some extent by looking at a population of patients who are at intermediate risk. Because, you know, the reason that most studies have been done in the past among high-risk patients is because... 
there's a higher risk of having the event, which will mean that they either need to recruit fewer patients or have a smaller follow-up period in order to reach statistical significance. So it's it's great to see that um, you know these these investigators are looking at this intermediate risk group of patients because it's not a study that's easy to do, and it actually captures what the majority of the general population will fall into in terms of a risk category. Yeah. Okay. So can I? I have two responses to that. One is agreement, which is that I agree, and exactly with your second point that uh, actually there have been some estimates that. Uh, if we use these eligibility criteria, we're talking about three quarters of men over the age of 55, three quarters of women over the age of 60. So basically a huge proportion of the population. And um, I agree with you that it's really important to give us some evidence and some figures that we can use when counseling our patients about primary prevention. So I totally agree with you that this is an important study. Can I then, the, the I can't help but the fact that my cynical hat comes on uh, or voice comes out, uh, mixing metaphors terribly here, but my cynic comes out and says, well, of course, AstraZeneca is going to be willing to fund this study given the potential uh, population and extension of indications uh, you know, that you could then sell prescription medications to. That's a fair point. But, you know, a lot of the a lot of these classes of drugs do have generics which are quite cost effective. So I think it would be a matter of when you're making decisions at a population level, really doing some cost effectiveness analyses to determine, you know, if, if you're helping enough patients to avert these events, to avert hospitalization, then potentially the benefit outweighs the risk. And yes, the drug companies experience an upside, but the pop- the population at large may as well. I Yeah, totally agree. This could be a win-win situation. Um, so let's see if it actually is a win-win situation. So tell me about the primary outcomes that we're going to use to adjudicate whether these treatments are effective. Sure. So the first co-primary outcome was a composite of death from a cardiovascular cause, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. So obviously things that carry different levels of clinical importance. And the secondary co-primary outcome was all of those things, as well as resuscitated cardiac arrest, heart failure, and revascularization. They also had several secondary outcomes, which included each of those individual components of the composite outcomes, as well as death from any cause. And just to add as well, they did um, a few subgroup analyses including, importantly, for the antihypertensive trial, they created three different subgroups based on the baseline blood pressures. So, Amol, can you tell us a bit about who these patients were, what they looked like? Yeah, so there were, as you said, 12,705 people enrolled in the study. Their mean age was 66 years old. Uh, They had an average BMI of 27 and a baseline average systolic blood pressure of 138. Uh, their average cholesterol level, so their average LDL was 3.3, so sort of in a moderate range. They had not particularly elevated inflammatory markers, so their average CRP level was 2, and their average fasting blood glucose was 5.3. In terms of some like demographic factors, uh, it was about 46% uh, female, They had a variety of different ethnic groups. So it was about 30% Chinese, just under 30% Hispanic, 20% white, 15% South Asian. So uh, a 
pretty broad mix of people. Um, and overall, they had, you know, uh, most patients had two or th- or three or more of the cardiac risk factors, which you had mentioned before. But of course, none of the patients had established cardiovascular disease. So this is really a primary prevention trial, as we talked about. So Amol, um, can you tell us a bit maybe about the baseline medications that these patients may have already been taking? Absolutely. I can talk about that. So before we talk about what medications they were on, let's remember that uh, patients could not have been on one of the study drugs prior to enrollment in the trial. So that's obviously going to affect the types of patients who are enrolled or the types of medications they were on. So having said that, about 22% of the patients were on an antihypertensive medication and less than 1% of patients were on a cholesterol-lowering agent. About 10% of patients were on aspirin. And about 3% of patients, or just under 3%, were on oral hypoglycemic agents. And then maybe could you tell us a bit about how many patients they were able to follow through to the end of the study? So follow-up in the study was for a duration of five and a half years on average. And their reporting around follow-up rates were that in 99.1% of patients, they were able to ascertain the vital status. So I guess that means they were able to tell whether they were dead or alive. They don't actually comment on you know follow-up with respect to other aspects of the uh, uh, primary outcome or safety variables. But if we take that 99.1% of face value, it's pretty good. It's, I mean, it's outstanding. It's beyond pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. Okay, so I think we've summarized adequately, I think, the study population and the methods. My takeaway from this, again, slight editorial comment, is that this is, a, you know, seems like a very high-quality, well-conducted study um, with fairly low risk of bias and the two things I think I, I have identified going through this that would be the major risks would be the possible selection bias with the run-in phase and the physician judgment for exclusion. But is there is there anything else that comes up for you? So nothing else specifically on a global scale, but um, when we address the hypertension component of it specifically, there, there are some other limitations that relate specifically to the, that arm of this entire study. Okay, well, why don't we talk about that arm now? So why don't you tell me about the results from the blood pressure arm? Sure. So just by way of reminder, um, the bottom line essentially was that among patients at intermediate risk without cardiovascular disease, treatment with candesartan plus hydrochlorothiazide was not associated with a lower rate of cardiovascular events as compared to placebo. So now just to get um, into the weeds a little bit, there was actually a decrease in the active treatment group in blood pressure compared to those who received placebo. And on average, it was a systolic blood pressure decrease of about six millimeters of mercury and a diastolic blood pressure decrease of about three millimeters of mercury. And to give you a sense of the first co-primary outcome, which was the composite, as we said, of death from a cardiovascular cause, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke, there was an absolute risk reduction of 0.3%. And to give you an idea of the absolute numbers, it was 260 patients in the intervention arm compared to 279 patients in the placebo arm, giving a hazard ratio of 0.93 that was not statistically significant. And if we were to put that in actual real-world terms, that gives a number needed to treat of about 333. Uh, well, arguably, there's, I guess so. Although there's a number needed to treat, I suppose, of like infinity. There is. So it's pretty much as good as that. So not really a compelling finding. 
And the second co-primary outcome really wasn't much better. It was essentially the same. There was an absolute risk reduction of about 0.3, yielding the same number needed to treat. And in that case, the absolute number of patients were 312 versus 328 in the intervention and placebo arms, respectively. So no real difference in outcomes. And in fact, there was no difference in the secondary outcomes, which again, by way of reminder, was any cause of death, as well as each of the individual components of the co-primary outcomes. Okay, so what do you make of this? It's a bit of a downer, Rena. It's a bit of a downer, except for the pre-specified subgroups, which we talked about before. So in which it's a bit of a downer, but if we look harder, we can find something to be optimistic about? I don't think it's fair to use the phrase, if we look harder, because this was a pre-specified hypothesis-driven subgroup Okay. that really situates this study um, more appropriately in the existing body of evidence. So remember, we said that they had a whole host of different um, subgroup analyses that they had intended to conduct at the outset before they started collecting data. And one of those subgroup analyses that they intended to look at was um, categorizing patients into thirds based on their baseline blood pressure. And so among those patients who were in the upper third of blood pressure, who had systolic blood pressures that were greater than 143.5 millimeters of mercury, patients in the active treatment group did do better um, compared to those who were in the first and second um, thirds of blood pressure. And that was across both co-primary outcomes with hazard ratios of 0.73 and 0.72 respectively. So really what we're saying is there's a 27% lower relative risk of cardiovascular events with blood pressure lowering therapy in this subgroup of patients who are hyper hypertensive at baseline. Okay. I mean, I suppose that's not a surprise. I mean, we have blood pressure treatment targets and recommendations for a reason. And we know that treating people who are hyper... So those would be the people who are like really, truly hypertensive at baseline. That's right. And I mean, even though I reported the relative risk, I was being a bit sneaky there just to tell you the absolute risk reduction was 1.7%, but still still not not terrible. And I'm very glad your conscience kicked in, Rena. <laughs> I have to say it's a hard time. I'm having a hard time hearing you over the sound of you drinking the Kool-Aid of this study. I feel like we're playing a bit of good cop, bad cop. In this. <laughs> I think so too. Okay. Um, so in reality, though, the overall, I think, message that we have to take away from this is that uh, treating an intermediate cardiac risk patient population with blood pressure lowering medications, irrespective of their baseline blood pressure, is not an effective strategy to prevent cardiovascular events, right? That's right. That's right. And so how do we contrast this? Like, you know, the baseline blood mean baseline blood pressure here was systolic of 138. So um, how do we compare this? You've brought this up before, We, you know, we the recent SPRINT trial, which tells us that more intensive blood pressure treatment targets, targeting a blood pressure as low as 120, um, has cardiovascular benefit. So how do we reconcile the results of these two high-profile blood pressure trials? Yeah, so I think the important distinguishing features that allow us to apply these two pieces of evidence in different contexts is that the SPRINT trial was conducted among a much higher risk group of patients, so people who had a Framingham risk at 10 years that was greater than 15%, or clinical evidence of cardiovascular disease. So that's one important difference is that that was a high risk group of patients in contrast to this study, which is an intermediate group, risk group. 
And then the other was that Sprint was using a treat-to-target strategy. So they actually ended up having a larger difference in systolic and diastolic blood pressure among the patients in the intervention arm compared to the ones in this study where the um, mean was essentially a reduction by six six over three millimeters of, of mercury. Right. So the, the end blood pressure targets here in the study are about 132 as opposed to, you know, the treatment arm in Sprint, we're getting close to 120 systolic blood pressure, right? Yeah. And I mean, the fact that they used a fixed dose strategy here, um, in, in terms of, as you said, in terms of being pragmatic, it means that on the flip side, we may have seen a study here where the drug doses were just too low in comparison to other studies, because these drugs would, these drug doses would be, compa- would be comparatively lower than what's been used in other trials that have evaluated these me- these classes of medications. And um, the added piece is that there's also some evidence through the ACCOMPLISH trial that was published in the New England Journal in 2008 that actually the combination of an ACE inhibitor and calcium channel blocker was actually better than the combination of an ACE inhibitor and a thiazide diuretic. So um, the question of like the appropriate drug combinations as well as drug dosing is um, is, is, is up for debate. Yeah, I totally agree. So that basically poses three critiques of, of to, uh, or three different differences between Hope and Sprint. Uh, the first you mentioned is the underlying population risk. The second you mentioned is the aggressiveness of treatment or the magnitude of blood pressure lowering. And then the third is the choice of medications. And you talked a little bit about calcium channel blockers versus thiazide diuretics. And then there's also been some criticism or commentary around Hope in that they used hydrochlorothiazide as opposed to chlorothalidone. And, you know, the stronger evidence for the thiazide diuretics is certainly for chlorothalidone as opposed to hydrochlorothiazide. So chlorothalidone believers might use this as an, another, uh, or might suggest that, you know, if they had chosen a different medication, they would have seen a, a benefit. Yeah, that's right. But I think what we're seeing, especially with the pre-specified subgroup analysis in this study does fit with other meta-analyses that have been conducted, um, including a one that was cited in this paper from The Lancet published in 2014, which showed that actually um, the baseline blood pressure does play a role. And, and that Lancet meta-analysis was really not looking just at the baseline blood pressure, but the baseline cardiovascular risk should be dictating who gets treated with antihypertensives. And so um, the fact that we're seeing, as you said, a cutoff of 140 here, uh, there's a, this threshold effect that we're observing that already s- seems to be factoring in most, factoring in in most, um, most guidelines. All right, great, Rena. So are there any last thoughts you want to make about this before we move on to the cholesterol arm? I guess the last thought I'll say again is just that even though this was a negative trial, I think it was an ambitious and an important one. And I appreciated the fact that, it, as we already discussed, it looked at an intermediate risk group of patients and also that it was just so diverse in along many sociodemographic factors. Um, you are like so unbelievably po- – like are you trying to get a job at McMaster University? <laughs> What's going on here, Rena? Okay, let's talk about cholesterol. Okay. I'm going to so- give you no opportunity to respond to that. <laughs> No, I love my job. I just want to acknowledge when good <laughs> research has been conducted. <laughs> okay. So um, the second arm of the HOPE 3 trial was evaluating the effect of rosuvastatin in these intermediate risk patients. So we know, obviously, that statins are highly effective in preventing cardiovascular events 
in patients who have established cardiovascular disease, in patients who have elevated cardiovascular risk, in patients who have elevated inflammatory markers, or in patients who have elevated cholesterol levels. What we don't know is what is the role of statins in primary prevention, and particularly in people who don't necessarily have excessively elevated cardiovascular risk or inflammatory markers. So has that question been answered through this study, in your opinion? Right. So just to remind ourselves that these patients um, had moderate cholesterol levels of an LDL of about 3.3. They did not have elevated CRP with an average of CRP of 2, so not elevated inflammatory markers. And they were all randomized to either 10 milligrams of resuvastatin, which I will make a, a sidebar comment that that's a fairly low dose, um, or to they were or they were randomized to placebo. And what they found in this study is that for the first primary outcome uh, of cardiovascular events, in the resuvastatin group, there was a rate of cardiovascular events of 3.7% versus 4.8% in the placebo group. So that's a difference of just over 1%. And that gives you a number needed to treat of 91. And um, if, Rena, if you're looking for a more sensational number, the relative risk reduction was 24%. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then their secondary, the second primary outcome, remember where you're adding heart failure or revascularization to the first primary outcome, is basically the same effect size. So there was a difference of 1.3% between the two groups. Um, and so that leads to, leads to a number needed to three, treat of about 73 people to prevent one cardiovascular event. And then I'll make one comment about safety, which is that uh, the drugs were overall quite well tolerated. Just over 1% in both groups were discontinued from the medication completely because of muscle symptoms. So not so bad? Yeah, that's right. Not bad at all. And then it's worth noting that more participants in the resuvastatin group did have muscle pain or weakness. So approximately 6% as opposed to approximately 5%. Um, but other than that, uh, there were really very few uh, differences and there was really no increase. There was only two cases of rhabdomyolysis. Uh, so overall, quite safe. So what do you think of this? How do you situate this in other existing studies like Jupiter, for example? Yeah, so overall, I mean, I think this is important. So this provides us with good evidence for the vast majority of adults who at a certain age become intermediate cardiovascular risk and tells us that by starting most people on a statin at a fairly low dose, this resuvastatin at a fairly low dose, um, you can achieve a pretty significant relative reduction in, car in car uh, risk of having a cardiovascular event, so about 25%, and basically a 1% absolute reduction. And I think the real strength of this study is that now we have fairly strong evidence to take to patients and say, what do you want to do? Because at the end of the day, you know, w weighing the burden whether it's financial or convenience of, you know, taking a pill um, or psychological of, you know, feeling like you have a, an illness um, with a 1% absolute reduction is like an individual decision. Um, so my takeaway is that that is 
the real strength of this study and then situating it in the context of the existing literature. So yeah, the probably the most relevant similar study is that of Jupiter in which people who had elevated inflammatory markers but relatively normal cholesterol levels uh, had a similar if not slightly greater benefit of being placed on uh, uh, resuvastatin in that study. So I think it, it basically is in line with the existing literature and again kind of points towards uh, the notion that uh, more LDL lowering is probably better. So now who's drinking the Kool-Aid? <laughs> well, I'd like to say that I take my Kool-Aid with a grain of salt. Thank you very much. <laughs> Were there any limitations that you wanted to point out for the statin aspect of the study? I don't think there's any methodological comments that I'll make. I think I'd like to sort of reflect a little bit more broadly on the notion of pharmacological primary prevention versus public health efforts to try to affect cardiovascular outcomes. Um, and you know, when we're see we're talking about things on a population level that are important. So like one in a hundred patients at a population level, very important. Um, but at an individual level, really hard to say that it's super important. And, you know, the pharmacological intervention is very much an individual intervention. Um, and so actually someone posed this exact question to Salim Yusuf and, uh, his sort, he's sort of publicly on the record saying that obviously, Population health is very important, but he argues that apart from smoking and exercise, the evidence for public health interventions to prevent cardiovascular disease are mixed and not particularly strong. And his belief is that we should focus on where the evidence base is strong. Um, and obviously, the evidence base here is, is, you know, we have a very strong piece of evidence here that tells us this is effective. Yeah, I think there's interesting arguments on both sides, to be honest. And um, I think what one of the advantages of an intervention like this is that I think we talked about it already that with generic versions of these drugs available, it could be, relatively speaking, quite cost effective. And not only that, but Richard Lehman in his famous BMJ blog made the comment that maybe this could point towards the the need to actually take low-dose statins off the radar of physicians even. Maybe it could be um, facilitated by other trained advisors who could provide counseling to individual patients. Um, since, as we mentioned, there wasn't really that close follow-up or monitoring for adverse events that was required in this study. Yeah, so I think that's a really thought-provoking thing, and I have a lot of respect for Richard Lehman, and he's not certainly someone who's you know in the pocket of pharmaceutical companies or whatever. Um, the one comment I'll make about that is that there was here a run-in period in which, and I'm just looking at the exact numbers, so 3.5% of patients were withdrawn because of side effects, although the most common side effect in that context was hypotension, so it wasn't really the statin-related side effect. Um, I don't know. I just think statins, you know, they're prone to a lot of drug interactions. They're... But you're right, like I don't really have a compelling reason why, for example, ASA is over the counter, but a low dose statin is not. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's all really great food for thought. And I agree with you. I can see arguments on both sides. But I think the question we all really want to know is whether you've set up a calendar alert for when you turn 50, for if you're <laughs> going to start taking statin 10 milligrams. Well, let's remember, Rena. let's not, wow, we're barely two, two minutes out of having talked about the results of this trial and you're already extending the eligibility criteria. So let's remember that it was 55 for men 
Uh, so that's a perfect example of clinical creep from this study. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, let's be honest with my, uh, uh, body habitus and eating habits. I'm basically already on a statin. Um, so Rena, this was really, uh, an important study. Obviously it was a lot of fun to speak with you about it. I think my takeaway is that, um, this is probably a compelling reason to extend the indications for statin therapy to some extent into intermediate risk patients. Um, and certainly it informs individual decisions from patients and it's the kind of thing people will weigh against, uh, you know, their own values and risk benefit. Um, and I make, I'll make the one plug, which is that I still, my concern about Dr. Yusuf's comment about going where the evidence is strongest is that the commercial incentives to do science push us constantly in the direction of pharmacologic interventions. And if we always just follow that, then there'll be no way, like there's a real need to do more uh, on the public health side, whether that means establishing the evidence base to be stronger in that regard. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree. I think that's a great comment. And you're right that some of these complex social interventions are just really hard to study. So they often result in negative trials or they don't get the same attention or buzz or funding. Perfect. Uh, thanks so much, Reno. It was uh, it was really fun to talk to you. And I promise, I think I'm probably not as negative and you're not as positive about this trial as we're going to sound. That's true. I okay. think we're both much more measured and balanced, but <laughs> this but made was... for much more interesting back and forth. Okay. So I think it's that time again for our good stuff segment. So Rena, tell me what caught your attention from the world of medicine this week. Sure. So this is going to be right up your alley, given your emphasis on public health in this episode. I wanted to share an article in the New York Times that talked about that's titled The Rich Live Longer Everywhere for the Poor Geography Matters, printed on April 11, 2016, which um, is sort of a really nice digestible summary of a paper published in JAMA recently that looked at the gap in lifespans between the rich and poor over the period of 2001 to 2014 and showed that it had really widened um, in, in certain parts of, of America. And so it's hypothesized that there were certain health behaviors as well as public health, local infrastructure, um, and local interventions that likely made that difference. Perfect. That's I, I fully agree. I, we may even cover that paper on a future episode of the podcast. Who knows? That would be great. You should. I encourage that. Okay. Uh, so the thing that caught my eye was an essay in the Annals of Internal Medicine on being a doctor, which was called The Nazi Patient. And it was written by Dr. Bernard Sussman. So Dr. Sussman describes the experience of being a Jewish physician who found himself caring for a patient who had previously been a Nazi and he describes the experience of probing to find out a little bit more about the patient, which ultimately led to the patient expressing a variety of anti-Semitic and bigoted views and even some degree of Holocaust denial. And then he described his very human response to that and how his natural emotional response affected his ability to be this person's physician. And I think the thing I really liked about it is that it's deeply honest. 
He doesn't sugarcoat his reaction. And ultimately, it's not a story of success in one sense, which is that he's not able to, you know, overcome his personal feelings and be this person's altruistic physician. Um, but read another way, it's a physician who, you know, is forced to be true to his own and, and sensitive to his own emotions and then sort of funnel a patient towards another uh, physician in order for that patient to get care. I thought it was just really fascinating. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll look that up. Thanks for sharing. I mean, I think we could all be served better by being more self-aware like that. Absolutely. Okay. So thanks, Rena. It was really, really fun to do this with you. Um, and bonus points to our listeners who got the Star Wars references that have been sprinkled throughout the introduction to this podcast episode. Thanks, Amol. Okay. Talk to you again soon. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the Rounds Table. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rounds Table Podcast. Thanks for listening.